Shalom, and I hope all is well. My name is Yitzchak Schiffman. Thanks for tuning into this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the Torah classes in it. Now, on to the episode. Shalom, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well. Zat Hashem. We're continuing on in Masechet Sanhedrin, and today's Amud is going to be Yedalit Amud Vet 14b. Zat Hashem, we're going to have three sections in today's learning. The first section is a continuum from yesterday, talking about the Egla Arufa, and we'll see there's a dissenting opinion, which is that of Rebbe Lezben Yaakov, which we'll discuss in the first section. The second point we'll discuss today is the idea of Ein Yada in Damav Yeduin, the redemption of Netaravaya, the transaction of Netaravaya and Maishasheni that don't have a determined value. And we'll discuss exactly how that has to be evaluated. And then the third section we'll deal with is how many people are necessary in regards to the redemption of concrete of items that have been uh, sanctified and as the Psukim talk about redemption being with certain people. Zrat Hashem, we're going to begin the bottom of Yudalid Amud, sorry, the top of Yudalid Amud Bet at Matnitin Deloki Haitana. Zat Hashem, again, our learning should be today as a zechut, as a merit for a fuash a complete recovery, a speedy recovery for Yaakov ben Dina, and we should only hear b'sorot tovot. And we had in the, in the uh, Mishnah, we had a machloket regarding Egla Rufa, which we spoke about yesterday. We know that the Sanhedrin had to send some of its members to participate in the measuring of where the dead body was to the closest city. And we said, even if it's clear which city it's closest to, the Sanhedrin sends either three members according to Rabbi Shimon, or five members according to Sanhedrin Agadol of 71, according to Rabbi Yehuda, and they would measure which city it's closest to. That was part, the integral part of this process of the Rufa, um, and then it would continue on with the decapitation of the calf in that valley, etc. However, the Mishnah, as Tosafot explains over here, it specifically says there's only three or five people. Now, the implication is only those three or five members of Sanhedrin would participate in this measurement. But we're going to see Rabbi Yezeb and Yaakov held, unlike our Mishnah, that the king and the Kohen Gadol would also participate in this measurement. And it will emerge that our Mishnah and Rabbi Yezeb and Yaakov disagree on this point. So it says the Gemara, top of Our Mishnah is not like the following Tana. Titania as the Brayta teaches, Rabbi Yezeb and Yaakov, Rabbi Yezeb and Yaakov says, So it says, your elders and your judges will go out to measure the distance between the closest city and this dead body. says Rabbi Yezeb and Yaakov, what does that Pasuk teach us? Zu Sanhedrin, this refers to the members of the Sanhedrin, that they had to participate in the measuring. Vishoftecha, but Vishoftecha teaches us, Zemelech v'kohen gadol, that the king and the Kohen Gadol also participated in this activity. How do we know Veshoftecha refers to these two specific individuals? Melech Tichti, because Melech, we know in Mishle, the Pasuk tells us, Melech ba Mishpat Ya'amid Aretz. A king through justice will establish the earth. We see Mishpat as a reference to the king. And Kohen Gadol, we also find that Kohen Gadol is referred to with this terminology. Tichti, because it says, It says, You shall come to the Kohen of the Leviim, and to the judge, so there's a comparison between this word shofet and the koanim. 
And therefore, since we're specifically talking about a particular Kohen, obviously it's the Kohen Gadol. It emerges then that Rebbe ben Yaakov does not concede, does not agree with our Mishnah, and our Mishnah only requires these three or five members of the Sanhedrin. Rebbe ben Yaakov also requires the king and Kohen Gadol to participate in this measurement. So the Gemara wonders, I understand that they're arguing on that point regarding who has to be there, that Rebbe ben Yaakov adds those two people. But he did not say clearly regarding the Sanhedrin if he also argues or if he concedes to either Rabbi Shimon or Rabbi Yehuda. So Ibailu, the Gemara asked the following Sheila question. Rabbi ben Yaakov, Bechada Palig, does he only argue in one regard? Or Betarti Palig, or in two regards does he argue? Memelech the Kohen Gadol Palig, does he argue only in that the king and Kohen Gadol have to participate in this measurement? Avil Sanhedri, but regarding the numbers of the members of Sanhedrin, Ik Rabbi Yehuda, Ik Rabbi Shimon, either holds a Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, that you need five or three members. So he agrees to one of the two Tanaim in our Mishnah, he just disagrees that you need two additional people as well, the king and Kohen Gadol. Nami Or perhaps he also disagrees regarding the Sanhedrin, that he requires the entire Sanhedrin, the entire 71-person court, the Sanhedrin Agadol, to participate in this measurement, and he actually argues on both points. So Amar Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef brings a proof from a Braita. It discusses a different topic, and he's going to try to show that Rabbi Yezir ben Yaakov is the Tana of this Braita, and he holds the entire Sanhedrin needs to needs to participate in the measurements, and Rabbi Yezir ben, ben Yaakov argues on both points. Now, what are we talking about in this Braita? That's going to be the proof of Rabbi Yosef. We're talking about the Alachav of the Zaken Mamre. The Torah teaches us that if the Sanhedrin Hagadol, the great Sanhedrin of 71, so this needs to become the law that all of the Jewish people abide by. And because of that, if there's one zaken, there's one elder who's an ordained judge, big rabbi, and he, despite having the Sanhedrin paskin da'alacha, he paskins against it. So as we're going to see, given the right circumstances, this fellow who's a zaken mamre, it's considered so severe that Avera of going against the accepted halacha is determined by the Sanhedrin, that he could even be put to death. That's going to be the idea we're saying here. Now the Brayta tells us this would only be true if the Sanhedrin paskin their halacha in their location, which means in the Lishkat Tagazit, it's called the inner uh, the court, the, the chamber of hewn stone, literally, which means actually where the Sanhedrin used to sit, which was in the Beit HaMikdash. But if the Sanhedrin paskin this halacha against the Zaken Mamre, somewhere outside of that, so the resulting refusal of that other rabbi to accept their psak and going against them would not result in his death. So let's see this inside. Tashma. The Brayta says like this, Matzana Beit Pagi. If the Zaken Mamre found this group of the Sanhedrin, a Beit Pagi, now Beit Pagi, literally it's a bridle, which is some sort of an item put on the horse uh, over an animal's head. But it's in the reference here, it refers to an area outside of the original Yerushalayim that was actually annexed and added onto Yerushalayim, similar to how an item goes over the animal's head. But the point is, they weren't sitting in their location, but rather the Sanhedrin were in one of the outskirts that was only later added onto Yerushalayim. So if he found them, and they paskin da'alacha, and he rebelled against them, he refused their, their psak. 
So Yachotehe Amra'ato Amra'a, you might think that their psak there would be sufficient, that when he refuses it, he would now be liable to mita. Tamud Lomar, therefore the Pasuk says, in regards to Zaken Mamre, Vekamta Ve'alita Elamakom. You shall get up and go to this place, which means that in order for him to be liable, to be put to death for refusing their psak, it's only the place that they're supposed to sit, i.e., near the in the Beit HaMikdash, the Lishkata Gazit, where the Sanhedrin's meant to sit. If they pask in there and he still goes against their psak, then it'll be Chayav Mita. But outside of that, they will not be able, based on their psak, to put him to death if he refuses their psak. That's the Brayta. Now the Gemara wonders, Dinafuk Kama, what are we talking about in this Brayta? He bumped into a group of the Sanhedrin. How many of the Sanhedrin did he bump into? Maybe you'll say that he bumped into some of them. Meaning, some of the members of the Sanhedrin were not in their original location that they would sit during adjudication. They happened to be Beit Pagi outside of that. So the problem is, if that's true, of course they can't put him to death because Dil Maybe these people paskin against him, but the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin who are in their proper location would actually follow his psak and would support him. So then you wouldn't be able to put him to death irregardless of what these people are saying and regardless if he goes against them because maybe the halacha actually follows him. So it can't be that the case of the Brayta is merely where some of the members of the Sanhedrin were outside when they paskined against him. Elapshita, it must be, that the entire Sanhedrin went out of the Lishkat HaGazit and bumped into him in the outskirt. But the question then is, Lemai, what was the allowance, or how did they end up all outside of the place of adjudication, again, during the time that they're meant to be adjudicating, which is the morning hours? If it's just for something voluntary, the uh, Sanhedrin decided to take an extended lunch break, and they ended up in Beit Pagi, and there they bumped into this Zaken Mamre, they paskined against him, and the Chidush is, even though he went against the Sanhedrin, he's not put to death because they didn't paskin this halacha in their original place. Problem is, mi matzu nafki, are they allowed to go out of their location for something voluntary, the entire Sanhedrin? Vachtiv, we know the Pasuk tells us in Shira Shirim. Literally, it means like this, Shararech aganasar, the, your, your navel is like a crescent-shaped basin, and I'll explain in a moment. Al yechsar hamazeg, do not allow the strength of the blend to diminish. And the way we expound the Pasuk is like this, Shararech, that which is in the middle of your body, it refers to the Sanhedrin, which is meant to be in the Beit HaMikdash, which is in the middle of Eretz Yisrael. Agan HaSahar is like a basin-shaped, a crescent-shaped basin, a moon-shaped uh, basin, which means as they used to sit like a crescent, they would sit in a semicircle, a half-circle. Al yechsar hamazeg, and this is a reference, you should not diminish from the dilute the, the dilution anymore. Now what does that mean? It used to be back in the day, they would dilute the strong wine that they had, two parts water, one part wine. So the emphasis here in the Pasuk is, if some of the members of Sanhedrin leave, al yechsar hamazeg, you can't go less than the mazeg, which means you can't have less than a third of the members, which is like the amount of wine that exists with two parts water, one part wine, 
not remaining in their location, again, during the hours of Psak, during the hours that they're adjudicating in the morning hours, they can't leave more than that, leaving less than a third of their original members, which would be 23 of their members, there in its original location. Which means some of them could leave, but if there's less than 23 left, that's going to be a problem. That would not be acceptable. So what's the point? The point is, for Advarish Shut, definitely the members of Sanhedrin couldn't all just leave because we see that they had to keep at least 23 people there. So back to the question over here. You're telling me that he bumped into them all outside and they paskined against him. How could he have bumped into all of them? They have to leave some of their members if it's merely for a voluntary thing, something they wanted to do, not required to do. How could he have bumped into them? So Ela the Gemara says, Pshita, it's obvious, Ladvar Mitzvah. That what happened was they left their original location for some sort of a mitzvah that required all the members of Sanhedrin to leave. So, hey, Chidami, what is the example of a Devar mitzvah that all the members of Sanhedrin had to leave the Lishkat Gazit in which they bumped into this Zakin Mamre outside? So, the, Rav Yosef concludes his proof and he says, Lav Lamedidat Egla, it must be. What is the mitzvah that they would be allowed, entitled to leave their location for during the hours of adjudication. It must be. It's It's to measure the uh, dead body, which city it's closest to, to know where they have to do the Egla Rufa. And for Eliezer ben Yaakov, he, and this is clearly the position of Eliezer ben Yaakov, the Amar, Kuli Sanhedri Ba'inan, that he requires the entire Sanhedrin to participate in this measurement. Can't be Rabbi Yudar, Rabbi Shimon, because they only require three or five members of the Sanhedrin. So it would emerge then, we've proven, if the reason they left, as Rav Yosef's interpreting, is to measure for the Egla Rufa, must be, this is Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov, and you see all the members need to participate, and then the Chidush of the Brayta is, that wouldn't be sufficient to put this fellow to death, but the reason they were outside of the Lishkat Gazit was because they were measuring Haraya. You need all the members of the Sanhedrin to participate in that activity. Now, just on the side, I wanted to mention, Tosafot does say here, maybe the reason that he bumped into them is because they had they'd finished uh, their adjudication for the day. It was, after the, it was in the afternoon, and they were all going home, and then he bumped into all of them. So Tosafot says that can't be, because it's likely if they were going home that they wouldn't all be walking as a group of 71 but rather they would walk individually, and therefore that would be an illogical thing, an unrealistic case to discuss in the Brayta. So the bottom line is, Rav Yosef has deduced, Rav Yosef Yaakov would argue on both points, and he also holds the entire Sanhedrin needed to participate in the measuring for Egla Rufa. Abayi says, not a proof, because there's another reason the Sanhedrin would have to leave, and that could be what the Brayta is talking about. Kegon in order to add on to the holy city of Yerushalayim, or the Azarot, the courtyards of the Beit HaMikdash, we needed the participation of the entire Sanhedrin. And perhaps that's why they left the Lishkat HaGazit, but Enachinami, maybe in regards to the number of the members of Sanhedrin that participated in Eglarufa, he agrees it's either three or five, like Rabbi Shimon or Rabbi Yehuda. Kiritzinan, like the Mishnah tells us, and we had this early in our Mishnah, you cannot add on to the city of Yerushalayim, or the courtyards of the Beit HaMikdash, unless you have the participation of the 71-person court. So therefore, says Abaya, you don't have a proof of Yosef that uh, Rabbi that, uh, Rabbi Ben Yaakov argues on both points. However, the Gemara says, nonetheless, Tanya Kavate de Rav Yosef. We have a Brayta that supports Rav Yosef. Actually, Rav Ben Yaakov would argue on both points because he holds that 
for the measurement of Egla Rufa, the entire Sanhedrin needs to participate. In accordance with Ezmid Yaakov. Tanya Kavate Drav Yosef, Matzana Beit Pagya, Beit Pagi, if the Zakin Mamre found this Beit Din, the Sanhedrin, in this outskirt, Vehimrale, and he paskined against them, Kigon, and the Brayta elaborates, for example, Sheyatz Ulim Didat Egla, they all went out for the measurement of the Egla Rufa, Ula Osifa Leirvala Zarot, or to add on to the city of Yerushalayim and the courtyards, Yachol Shetehe Amra to Amra Us, you might say, that his rebellion is significant to put him to death, therefore it says, no, you have to go to the place, meaning referring to the Lishkat HaGazit, it's the original location that would cause him to be put to death if he paskins against their psak there, and therefore he won't be put to death. But from this Brayta, you see clearly that the Brayta holds all the members of Sanhedrin, would go out for measuring for the Egla Rufa. This would be the position of Rav and Yaakov, like Rav Yosef says. And indeed, he argues on both points, not only in the additional members of King and Kohen Gadol participating in the measurement, but also that you need all 71 members of Sanhedrin to participate, not just three or five. Let's move on to the second section now, regarding Netaravai and Maaser Sheni. So we spoke about this before, which is that we know there's certain tithes that a person has to take off every year, and then he has to give them to the appropriate recipients. Now, so some of those tithes, we have what's called netaravai. Netaravai is that when a person plants a tree, or it's a debate actually if it's karamravai or netaravai, and the first three years of it, it's called orla, you're not allowed to eat it. The fourth year is called netaravai. He has to take those fruits to Yerushalayim and eat them there. Similarly, regarding Maaser Sheni, which is the first, second, fourth, and fifth year of the Shemitah cycle, in addition to the Truma and Maaser that he takes off and gives respectively to the Kohen and the Levi, he also takes off Maaser Sheni. And this third tithe is taken up to Yerushalayim and consumed there. Now, oftentimes, there was a tremendous amount of produce, if you imagine you had acres and acres or hundreds of acres of orange trees, that's a tremendous amount for Netaravai or for Maaser Sheni. So the halacha is that the owner is allowed to transfer the ketushah of the fruits onto money. Money you can have in a very large amount of money in, in a purse. And then take that money to Yerushalayim, purchase foods there, and eat those in Yerushalayim with the sanctity of net Ravai or kerem Ravai. That's permitted. Now generally this is an easy fix. It's just figure out how much it costs to make the transfer, no problem. The problem is, as the Mishnah told us, is ein damav yeduin. If we don't know how much those fruits are worth. So then you need a group of three people to assess the value of that produce before transferring it onto money to make sure it's a fair assessment. So the Mishnah said, mm-hmm. If you have netaravai or ma'aser sheni without its value is not known, you need three judges to determine its value before assessing it so that you can transfer it onto money and take that money to Yerushalayim. So Tzana Rabban on the Brayta explains, What does it mean that its money is not known? We actually mentioned this in the Mishnah, but the Gemara says, it means perotir kivu, fruits that had spoiled, viyayin shehikrim, or wine that began to sour, began to turn into vinegar, umaot, or monies, shechelidu, they started to rust. Meaning to say is, you have a situation where it's difficult to determine for a simple person, not a businessman perhaps, to determine its value. So there you need a court of three, which we'll get to in a minute, who they have to be, to determine how much it's worth, so that it's the, the flip, the exchange, is going to be an appropriately done exchange at fair value.
That's the point. Okay. Tanu Rabbanan. Says the Brayta. One second. Tan Rabbanan says the Brayta. Let's continue. If you have this produce or Maaser Sheni monies and you don't know how much it's worth anymore because it's somewhat spoiled, it says the Brayta, you could redeem it with the assessment of three. Now, Lekuchot literally means buyers, but Rashi learns Lekuchot means expert uh, appraisers, meaning people who are merchants that are expert at appraising. You can redeem it based on their assessment of how much this fruit is currently worth. Tosafot brings a different pshat. He brings yesh mefarshim, even though he seems to prefer Rashi. He says that they would do some sort of a uh, auction, and people who are interested in purchasing it, whoever would give the higher value, that's what you would go with. So you would do some sort of a uh, auction of some degree to determine its value. We'll go with Rashi. Rashi says you bring in three appraisers, and they would determine how much this is meant to be worth. But they have to be expert appraisers. But not three who are not appraisers because they would not necessarily determine the value properly. And the Gemara says this is not really an inyan of judgment because judgment, as we're about to see, you certainly couldn't have goyim involved in it. But even if one of the appraisers was a goy, it would be acceptable. All you need to know is a fair value, so a guy could be relied upon for that as well, and that's not an issue. And he says even further, even if one of the appraisers is actually the owners of these produce, it's also effective, again, because you don't really need judgment here, you just need to know how much this produce is worth. Rabbi asked the following question. What happens if you have three people that are merchants, but they literally means they put their money in the same purse, means they're partners in business. So the question is as follows. Do we look at those three as three different deo, three different opinions, because ultimately they're three individuals? Or do we say, since they work together, it's very likely that they all think the same and they're going to make the same appraisal and you won't actually have three different opinions and that can't be relied upon, you need two more. Mao. So what's the halacha? Tashma. So the Gemara says, bring a proof. Because the Brayta says, Ish shav. If you have a man and his two wives. This is interesting. It means Again, you don't need judgment here, so women would qualify to be judges. No problem over here. Appraisers. If a man and his two wives would enter to be the appraisers, Podin ma'aser sheni You could redeem it based on their word if you don't know the value. It means that's effective. So the Gemara assumes if a man and his wives is really, he supports them and they're on the same page in that regard. So if they're able to act as three opinions in order to determine the value of this unknown produce, produce value, so also three people who work together in business would also be able to. But the Gemara answers it's not necessarily a proof. And this is based on a principle in Masechet Kituvot. The principle there is like this. Really, the fact that a man has to support his wife with food Really what happens like this. The, the, the halacha is, a woman when she works, she gives her work to her husband. And in exchange for that, the husband has to support her. However, the Gemara Tuvot says, imagine the woman is making far more money than the man is making. So she says, you know, the, word of the, the words of the Gemara, any nizonit ve'eni osa. 
I don't want to be supported by you, she says to her husband. I don't want to be supported uh, with food, etc. And I'll take care of myself. Let's see, she makes far more. She's a brain surgeon, and he's a, I don't know, a street painter. I don't know, something simplistic, let's say. I don't know, nothing against street painters. But she makes far more money, let's say. So she's allowed to say that, actually. And she could support herself. Her husband won't have the obligation to support her. And he also won't have rights to her income. So says the Gemara, maybe that's the case that the Ibraita here means when it says, because then a man and his two wives, they're considered disconnected as they're not really being supported in the same way. But where you have three people who are partners in business, maybe that wouldn't be sufficient because they're all essentially in the same uh, perspective and it wouldn't be effective. And the Gemara says, Maybe the example of this Braita would be like Rav Papa, it literally means the daughter of Abbasura, which was his wife, where she agreed to this, where she disagreed to take money from him and she supported herself because she was independently wealthy. And therefore, in such a scenario too, as we said over here, maybe that's why a man and his two wives could be the appraisers. But three business partners, perhaps it wouldn't be effective and you don't necessarily resolve that question with this case of Ish Ushtena Shav. Okay, let's move on to the final section of the day today, which is Hayak Teishot Bishlosha. Now, let's just remember, in the Mishnah we said, we said in the Mishnah, Hayak Teishot Bishlosha, if somebody consecrates property, Okay, now we're specifically talking about property that is allowed to be deconsecrated. So let's say, for example, animals that are not kosher. So if a person consecrates them, they can't be brought as korbanot. See, if you consecrate a korban, that's something that needs to be brought. Unless it develops some sort of a blemish or an issue, you're not allowed to deconsecrate. So if it's ekdeshot, which is some sort of a non-kosher animal, for example, and you want to deconsecrate it after, so we said bishlosha. You need three judges to determine... Uh, it's, it's proper value for deconsecration, to transfer it onto money. And then the Mishnah said, Erachin movable Erachin, movable uh, things that you dedicated their value, which we'll discuss tomorrow more, also require three. Abhuda argued, and we're not going to focus in on him right now. But the point is like this. We have the Parashat Bechukotai. We have three sections talking about deconsecration. Now, first section is regarding Erachin. Erachin is where a person pledges his Torah value to the Beit HaMikdash, which is determined by his gender and his age. His well-being or health or strength has, doesn't come into account. That would come into account if he said Demeyalai, or Demeyalai, meaning if he pledged his other value, but if he pledges Erach to the Beit HaMikdash, so then he has to give a certain amount based on his gender and his age. The second parasha regarding deconsecration is talking about the redemption of movable objects, or in the context there, as Rashi quotes it, redeeming animals that were consecrated, like I said, de- that were consecrated. To deconsecrate those, it would have to be that it's not something pledged for a korban, that would be a problem. And then the third section talks about deconsecrating properties that were dedicated to hektish. Now, the first parasha of Erechin, it mentions the word koanim, that they have to be involved. You need koanim involved in the assessment of value to deconsecrate, it mentions it three times. The second parasha of deconsecrating animals or movable objects, it also says koanim three times. And then the third, which is karkaot, lands, it says it four times. Now we deduce, as we'll see later, that when it comes to deconsecrating lands, according to our Mishnah, you actually need 
10 people because the fact that it says 3 plus 3 plus 4, we deduce from that that you need a total of 10 individuals, which the Mishnah actually spoke about. We're not going to get too much into it right now, but the Mishnah had said you need 9 regular people and 1 Kohen. It mentions Kohanim 10 times, but from this we deduce you just need 10 people. Why not 10 Kohanim? We'll discuss later. But the point is, the question the Gemara is going to discuss here is, how many people are needed for, like we said, the consecrating hektesh? So our Mishnah told us movable objects require, that were sanctified, require three judges in order to assess its value to redeem it. So the Gemara says like this, Deconsecration of holy items requires three judges. But our Mishnah does not follow the following Brayta. Again, the Tanya Eliezer ben Yaakov, Omer Eliezer ben Yaakov says, Even if it's a, Tzinura is a, a fork that was used, a very small like spinning needle that was used to spin golden threads. It's a very small movable item. Even that small movable item that was consecrated, Adam requires ten judges to determine its value to deconsecrate it. Clearly there's a machloket here. It means Rav Lezben Yaakov holds you need ten people. Our mission has said you need three people for these movable things. So Rav Papa said to Abayi like this, Yaakov, I understand the position of Rav Yaakov, he follows the position of Shmuel, as we're about to say, it says Kohanim are required ten times in, that, in those three parashiyot, as we said, to assess value of these consecrated items. Again, three in the parashav erechin, three in the parashav consecrated items, and four in the parashav consecrated properties. And I understand then that Shmuel says you need those ten judges for deconsecrating Lands and it's the same thing regarding deconsecrating movables. It means we apply all of the koanim that are listed to all of the parshiot. So therefore, you need ten judges or assessors, appraisers, to determine the value of movables as well, just like land, in order to deconsecrate. El Rabbanan Shloshaminalahu. But according to the Rabbanan who say you only need three judges or three appraisers to deconsecrate uh, sanctified items, where would they get this from? Maybe you'll say in the middle parasha in Bichukotai where it talks about deconsecrating movables or animals, it says three times koanim. So maybe that's why you need three judges. The problem is but it only says koanim four times by lands. So maybe you should only need four. But we know maybe you'll say okay that is the case. The problem is But our Mishnah said you need nine people plus a kohen. You need ten people to deconsecrate through a proper appraisal lands. So you see clearly with lands you need ten. So why do you only need three? When it comes to movable uh, objects that were consecrated, so it must be, the way we look at it is that since in the parasha we had three in Erechin, three in movable objects, and then it said three, four more in the parasha of uh, sanctified properties, lands. So you'll say is, since it completes to a total of 10, and that last parasha of lands is discussing when you deconsecrate lands, it means you need a total of 10 people to deconsecrate lands, to give a proper appraisal. The problem is that that's true. 
The second parasha, which talks about redeeming, deconsecrating, sanctified items, well, that follows the first parasha where there were already three. And then the second parasha, deconsecrating, sanctified items, is another three. So then that should complete to a total of six. The Mishalmi Bushita should be a total of six, Libaushita. So you should need six in the redemption to have the proper appraisal and the redemption of movable objects that were sanctified. And the Gemara says, therefore, Kashia, this is actually left unresolved. This is indeed difficult. We don't understand the Tan of our Mishnah, why he holds you only need three appraisals, appraisers when it comes to deconsecrating movable hectish items. We're stopping here at the bottom of Yudad and Bet. Bezrat Hashem will continue on with Erechin tomorrow. Tetvav and Aleph. In the meantime, everybody have a wonderful day.